but it's good to be here. It's good to be back. Um, it's good to be seeing you guys in person. Um, I'm really excited for the message today. And so we're, we're starting a new series, actually. Um, so we're going to be our series name, the series that we're going to be going through for the months of May and June is going to be called the Gospel in Zechariah. Gospel in Zechariah. Um, just wondering how how many of you guys are familiar with the book of Zechariah? Is that I realize it's not a book that like a lot of people, you know, <laughs> and he's like, I am. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's just one of those books that, you know, I feel like it's not necessarily, you know, preached on a lot. Um, when I wasn't, you know, as a beginning Christian or even when I wasn't Christian, I'd never heard of that book before. It's like, what is that about? <laughs> you know, um, and, and so part of the sort of inspiration is, you know, as our preaching team was coming together and just thinking about, you know, what should we be going through next? You know, we really wanted to do something from the Old Testament um, because we had felt that, you know, you know, just talking to some people, you know, going through their quiet times and just just hearing about how a lot of people are struggling to reading through the Old Testament and being like, what does this have to do with me at all? <laughs> like, cool. You know, I'm reading through these names of people. I'm reading through these prophecies and I have no idea what's going on, you know, and <clears throat> but we feel like there's so much richness to be found in the Old Testament and so much of the Old Testament that that, that talks about Jesus actually, and talks about, you know, our relationship with him and talks about what God is like. And we really want to sort of show that through you guys, you know, through, through, through a study together as a church through this book of Zechariah. And so, so we've titled it the gospel in Zechariah. We hope to kind of, you know, go through these, um, these prophecies, go through these, you know, some of these are bizarre visions <laughs> um, and, and show how they kind of point towards this, this good news that God is bringing, you know, that had not happened at this point yet in the Old Testament that, you know, and I, when we feel like Zechariah just gives us so many different facets, so many different physical pictures of what the gospel is, of what the main message is. And so that's, that's kind of why we're doing this. That's, I hope you're excited for it. I'm excited for it too, as I've been reading through this book, you know, I've been kind of getting mind blown a little bit, <laughs> you know, reading through commentaries and just being like, wow, wow this is, this is exciting. Um, so I want to join you. Um, I want to ask you to just join me in in praying um, real quick for our service, um, just for this time as we kind of dig into the word. <clears throat> Father God, I thank you for the joy of being able to worship together. <clears throat> I thank you for just the the amazing news of the gospel and the good hope that we have that gives us joy now, Lord. God, I just pray that as we just read through this book, that God, that you would blow our minds, God, with, <clears throat> with how amazing you are, how, how good you are, how much you love us. I pray that our hearts just, yeah, would be saturated lord with with all of these words god with all these promises and i pray that we would be encouraged encouraged to live uh, god in this broken world in a way that is full of meaning and purpose and joy and, and power god so that we pray that for us here we pray that for us as a church <clears throat> god would you continue to just revive us continue to reawaken us and, and invigorate us, God. 
with your heart, with your energy, God, for this world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so today we are going to be covering sort of the overall picture of Zechariah. And I wanted to give an overview because I realize it's not a book that most people are familiar with. We're going to be in Zechariah 1 and 8. Kind of a interesting, you know, I'm not just chair picking here, but these, these are kind of, I would say, very foundational sort of chapters to uh, the sort of overarching theme and message of the book. And if I were to kind of summarize the overarching sort of message or theme when I was kind of studying through this book is I think about hope. It's about hope. And I've titled this passage, uh, this, this message, this overview as stubborn hope in a discouraging world. Because I think Zechariah is much about hope. It's a much about this Messiah who's going to come. It's much about this kingdom that's going to come, this peace and prosperity, as we're going to see, that's going to come to the world through Jerusalem, through Israel. It's about these, it's, it's full of these good news, but it's set in the context, as we'll see, in a very discouraging time, in a time when it was very disillusioning, when the world was very broken around them. Um, and so I see as one of these main things as the stubborn hope, the stubborn hope in a discouraging world. I don't know if any of you guys drive in the city, I drive in the city, and there is this billboard on North Avenue, and I think it's Howard and North Avenue. This is a huge billboard. I don't know if you guys seen it. It's near Micah. Um, and you know, it says it will get brighter. And it's just it's the optimism thing. I just drive by it every time. And you know, you know, and I just think about, you know, this is obviously not a Christian billboard, you know. And I just think about every time I drive better, just like think a little bit about like compare and contrast between like, you know, what is the secular idea of hope and what is the Christian idea of hope? You know, if I were to describe the secular idea of hope, <clears throat> I would describe it probably as just a general sort of sense of optimism. Um, it's not necessarily based on anything factual. It's like there's no reason we should think things will get better. I mean, you know, things could definitely get worse. <laughs> if I said it will get brighter, you know, in like February 2020, you know, <laughs> might, be, might be a false statement, right? You know, uh, there's no necessary reason to think so. And so I think the secular idea of, you know, hope is very much like, uh, you know, we should be hopeful, right? That, you know, that, that's positive. It's nice. It's a good attitude to have, to be thinking positively. But it's not really necessarily based on anything, right? It's not necessarily like, you know, we have proof or anything that things will get better. And, you know, some of us realists are more pessimists, right? We're like, I don't know if things will really get better. You know, and it's interesting because we, you know, Stephen and I actually, you know, there's a time when over the spring we, we, we got some donuts and we, you know, handed them around to students on campus. And, you know, we asked this question, you know, what do you put your hope in? You know, what, do you have hope? Like, what, what gives you hope in this world? And it was interesting, you know, to me how much I think the students wanted to answer in a way that was hopeful. They didn't want to just be like, yeah, I have no hope. <laughs> you know, it was like depressing, right? They wanted to, you know, but they, they couldn't, it was hard for them to articulate, you know, why they would have hope, where it would come from. And it ultimately came down to sort of like, uh, you know, we're progressing in science and, you know, we're progressing in, you know, in, in progress in society. And, you know, and those are the reasons why, you know, we are generally hopeful. And, you know, and we're, so you know, we're kind of, at that point, Russia just invaded Ukraine. You know, we just kind of lightly brought that up and we're just like, you know, not to sort of like contradict, you know, but just kind of give them some more food for thought, like, like, yeah, 
you know, has, you know, in some ways I'm glad for modern medicine studies progress, but you know, in some ways have things really changed? You know? And where does that hope come from for you? And we kind of wanted to challenge them to think about that a little bit more. Well, the Christian basis for hope is actually based in something very different, right? It's based on a confident expectation in a good reality that's going to happen, right? If you know, the whole Christian premise is that there is a God and he is working things for good and he's going to bring about this kingdom and, you know, and to the degree in which we believe in that, the degree we have realistic and logical hope, right? Our hope isn't just this feeling. It's just this thing that's based on reality, on something that actually exists, you know, if we believe it to be true. And so the Christian basis of hope, we have something we can actually talk about. And, and that's what I hope to go through in Zechariah, is to go through sort of this basis of hope and, and how the people of Zechariah were encouraged to look at the extraordinary promises of God, even during a discouraging time. And so three main kind of points today that we want, three main themes that we want to look at. We're going to be going through a lot of different places in the book. First, how the people of Zechariah were called to hope and to move on from the past. Second, how they were called to hope in the midst of discouragement. And finally, how they were called to live justly and rightly as people of hope. So we're going to start in Zechariah 1. Um, I'm going to be going through a lot of scripture today. So if you do have your Bibles or you do kind of want to follow along, you know, that might help you to sort of understand, you know, where we are and what the structure is like. Um, but Zechariah 1, verse, verse, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts, for purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. And that's kind of how the book of Zechariah begins. I'm going to give us a little bit of context, sort of place where that is, a little bit of history here. <laughs> so the book of Zechariah is around the time. It's a little preceding before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I believe some of you guys have been reading in your quiet times. Um, and it's immediately after the 70-year period of exile. So you guys kind of know history of the Old Testament, right? Um, basically, there are centuries and centuries in which you, God is sending these prophets, these people that tell them about their impending judgments if they do not repent and turn from their evil ways. And that's why so much of the Old Testament looks like judgment. <laughs> you know, people are just like, why is God so angry all the time in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, it's like over centuries and centuries of warnings. And second, you know, I find it actually more of a sign of God's grace that he spent centuries and centuries warning people. And that's why there's so much of that in the Old Testament. Um, because he wanted to give grace, and he wanted to give mercy, and he wanted people to turn. But as we see, you know, from around 900 BC or so, all the way to 600, there's this kind of increasing sort of this prophet sense, pro you know, judgment's going to come, 
you know, they're going to come and conquer and take away your land if you do not repent. And the one of the last people to do that was my man named Jeremiah. He had the unfortunate task of overseeing and being the prophet of Jerusalem as it was finally carried out. As judgment came upon Jerusalem and they were carried out and they were, you know, the Babylonians came in and, and you know, they ransacked the city. They destroyed the temple and they took, they took them away. They took them away into exile. And so here you see this, this intense period of sorrow for the Israel people. You know, their whole identity had been, they were people of this land that, you know, Exodus, God had brought them out of Egypt and put them into this land. And it was a sign of their favor and it was taken away. All right. They were, they were taken away as slaves again, you know, to this foreign, this cruel empire. Um, and then and Jeremiah talks about that. And he talks about how there's going to be 70 years of exile before God is going to bring them back. And he's, you know, he's going to be doing good things. And there's that context of that famous verse. You know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Well, after, it's not exactly 70 years. I mean, how you calculate 70 years depends on which scholar you follow. But in 538, you know, some of you guys like math people are just looking that way, like, hold on. You know, that's, a, that's not quite 70 years. It, it depends on how you calculate it. it. I think the 70 years refers to 586 to 516 more. Um, but anyways, in 538, the beginning of this kind of return starts to happen. And you see the Cyrus allows the first. Cyrus is this Persian king that comes and he takes over the Babylonian empire. And it, the Persian empire begins and he allows the first exiles to come back. Um, it's not necessarily he's Christian. He's not like he's, you know, he's following anything. You know, he's just like, that's just his political strategy. I'm going to send the people back so they can be on their frontiers and protect us as an empire. You know, and so God uses this heathen person to just, you know, to fulfill this prophecy of bringing the Israelites back. So in 538, they're back. And in 520, we have the prophecies of Zechariah in the second year of Darius, the second king. Um, I believe he's the second king of Persia. And then we see in 516 is when the temple is finished. And so that's the context. And so it was a time of heavy discouragement and disillusionment. The, the exile was very fresh on their minds. The judgment of God, you know, upon them was very fresh on their minds. Perhaps they had a lot of questions about whether God still loved them. You know, perhaps they, they were wondering, you know, is, is, is God is it going to be the same? Is, is God still, does God still care about us? Is he half-heartedly kind of bringing us back in? You know, they, they, they had felt the weight of that judgment. That was coloring in some ways everything that they saw. And so in the in this first section, when, 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 when Zechariah opens up, he wants to address that. And so we see that he addresses, he says, yep, your father sinned. That's why they went out into exile. And that's why there is judgments. Um, but that's actually the last time he speaks about that in the book of Zechariah. The rest of Zechariah is actually about this great joy and this great hope. Um, no longer are these words about these judgments that have happened in the past. He addresses it. He addresses the elephant in the room, but he calls them to move on from it. He calls them to repent, to turn from it, and to move on from it. In Zechariah 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I had previously, I'm adding that word previously, purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, said the Lord of hosts. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah, fear not. And I've kind of highlighted this text as maybe it's just like one of the center sort of, sort of messages of this book. You know, previously I'd done these things to you. Yes, I did. 
you know, and, and you deserve them. <laughs> like, I'm just be, you know, upfront. But still, again, now I have a purpose in these days to bring good to you into the house of Judah. Fear not. And so what are some of these great promises? Well, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the next few weeks talking about some of these promises. Some of them involve the Messiah. You know, if I wanted to give us kind of a quick picture so that we know what we're talking about, you know, in Zechariah 8, it says, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. So this picture of peace, of prosperity, you know, old men and old age, that means there's, there's no war, right? There, there are people living you know, to their fruitful ends of their lives and, and God dwelling in the midst of Jerusalem continues to say, for thus says the Lord, it's marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days. Should it also not be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country. I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And he finally continues on, not only that, not only are you going to be blessed, but thus says the Lord of the hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to one another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations, they're not Jewish people, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. And so you see this like trifold kind of like um, trifold kind of sort of picture of what God is going to do. You know, he's going to bring about prosperity and peace. He's going to dwell in Zion again. And if some of you guys remember kind of what he said in Genesis before, he's once again going to restore purpose to Israel. Israel is supposed to be the light of the nations. It's supposed to be this place where the whole world was going to be blessed through Israel. And here again, you see that restoration. You see that, yes, you are going to be that jewel, you know, um, that, that, that beauty that I've made you to be. Nations are going to once again come to you and you're going to have this reputation that God is with you. You know, so there is this beautiful picture of complete restoration. And I think why this book is so encouraging is because I think the people of Zechariah's time, because of the fact that that judgment was so on the forefront, the suffering was so on the forefront of their minds, they need to be reminded of this like very basic fact that God's ultimate purpose for them was mercy and not judgment. I talk to a lot of Christians sometimes who I think, you know, because Christian life is hard, you know, and there's and there's discipline and there's suffering and there's difficult things. And, you know, people forget some of these things. I talked to some people, you know, who, who have so much sorrow over their sin, you know, that they slip into self-condemnation and they just think God's attitude towards them all the time is just one of disappointments and one of frustration and anger and, and judgments. And that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. Yes, there is displeasure over sin. Yes, that is a thing. 
we have to remember that God's ultimate purpose is mercy and not judgment. You know, for those of us who experience, feel like we've just been sitting under judgment for our sin, you know, crushed under self-condemnation, you need to remember that God's purpose for you is not to, you know, that's, you know, he will call out your sin, you know, but he loves you and his purpose for you is for good and he cares about you and, he, and that is who he is. I think for a lot of us going through COVID, I mean, you know, there's just been a lot of hard things going on in the last two years. And, you know, we've heard a lot of sermons on suffering, you know, we start to just forget that God is good. You know, we're just like, oh, suffering is just part of the world and it's, you know, God's going to be working in it and all that stuff. We forget that that's not God's end, right? His purpose isn't just to make us suffer and that's it. And we're just going to have to praise him and all that. That's a temporary thing. Forget that God's purpose is to redeem the world. He's going to want to one day do away with suffering, do away with disease, with death, with things that ought not to be. Yes, it's still in progress, right? But that's what God is going and that's what he's doing and that's who he's going to, that's who he is and that's what he's going to be doing. And I think you and I, sometimes when we have been in that place and we need to lift our heads like the people of Zechariah, we need to remember that God's purpose is mercy. It's good for us not judgment. And I think also, I think this points to the gospel again, right, in Zechariah. It points to the good news. And what is this good news? Well, if I had to kind of summarize this in this book of Zechariah that we're seeing, the heart of the gospel is this, that God is motivated by his own love and grace to show kindness to us, not our obedience and goodness. If there's anything you take from this book, it's like, right, you, you look at it, right? Like they, they were judged because they deserved it in some way, right? They fell away from the living God. They worship idols. They did all those things. And it's not because they started behaving better that God brought them back, right? It's not because they did anything different. God brought them back, right? And God promised to restore and to do all these things, not because of them, not because they were better, not because they got their act together, because he was like, you are my people. And I made a covenant with you. So Zechariah 9, 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waters pit. And God says, I, I recall the covenant I made with you that was unconditional. And no matter how you sin, you know, I was going to discipline you, but I never leave you, never forsake you. And I never stop working in your life until you become that which I've called you to be. And that's a picture for us to remember, you know, when we're struggling in sin and we're feeling like, oh man, I'm, you know, I've not been faithful to the Lord. You know, I was struggling with that these last two weeks, just feeling like, man, I just haven't been faithful to God. I, you know, kind of run away from him for a little bit, you know, and to know God's, God's heart for me isn't based on that. You know, it's based on his own love and grace. You guys know that, you know, Andre is pregnant and I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a parent, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely very scared, apprehensive, excited, you know, and, and you know, one of the things I just think about, you know, I, I think I heard this, you know, pastor, somebody who was a parent say this before, and, and they, they said, you know, how they like regularly like to just take their kid and just look, you know, <laughs> sit them in front of them and just look in their eyes and just say, hey, I just want you to know that no matter what, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what you do, I just want you to know that I love you. And that's never going to change. That's like never 
gonna change. I'm not saying you won't disappoint me, you won't grieve me at times, you won't do things that I highly disagree with and we're gonna have arguments, but I want you to know that no matter what, I unconditionally love you. And I kind of, you know, I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, boy, there's one thing I wanna do as a parent. You know, I wanna do that to my kid. I think we, we assume that sometimes with our parents, hopefully some of us assume that, but I wanna make that explicit. You know, and I, I would hope that I would do that with my kids just so that they know beyond a doubt, beyond a doubt, no matter where they are, no matter what happens, that I unconditionally love them. I will never stop loving them. And I think in some ways, I think that is God's heart. That's what God wants us to know about who he is and what he has promised to do. You know, so as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from bottomless pit. I see an echo of that in Romans 5, 8, you know, when it says, for God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not after we repented and stopped being sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we see the, the heart of the gospel in this book, Zechariah, and how God, God comes into their life and, you know, out of his unconditional love to call them to hope and to move on from this past judgment. Second, we see him he calls them to hope in the midst of discouragement. Now, this is not, this is what I love about this book. This is not just this kind of, yay, everything is good. You know, everything is awesome. You know, you know, it's a realistic hope. You know, it's a hope that has to be fought for because there is a lot of temptation to be discouraged. You know, when they came back to Jerusalem, it was looking like ruins. Yeah, I couldn't find the picture of the ruins of Jerusalem, so I just found some random picture here. But, you know, it's this destroyed, destroyed rubble of a city you know, the shambles of the city. And it was, you know, can you imagine can coming back from so many years and just seeing the ruins of your home? You know, the ruins of the temple where you used to worship. You know, Jerusalem in shambles. Discouraging, right? Not only that, there was a tricky political situation. I mean, Cyrus had called them to come back, but they had a lot of enemies in the area. They had people who didn't want them to come back and we're going to oppose them. And we see that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, it was... It was Time fraught with fear and insecurity. In two years, I think, I think the second year after they come back, you know, they do end up laying, laying the foundation of a temple. But it's kind of this like mixed scene. It's like this bitter, bittersweet scene because they're not fully happy because they, they lay down the foundation of the temple, but they feel discouraged even in doing so because they, they remember the old temple with all of its glory and splendor. And, it, and it's discouraging to them, right? When they lay down this foundation, this new temple, and they're like, man, this is all, this is all that we have now. We see this in the parallel book in Ezra, which chronicles some of these things, these exiles returning, you know, and says that when they laid the foundation of the temple, you know, yeah, there was a shout with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. <clears throat> but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father houses, old men, who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice. That's always just something that, you know, has just captured me when I think about that. It's just to put myself in those shoes of those old guys, you know, who saw that glory of the temple and they're just looking at these measly stones laid down for foundation. And they're just reminded, you know, they're just tempted to despair. They're just, reminded, they're just tempted to just wallow in the sorrow of what has occurred to them. You know, and so I think that temptation to despair, to be discouraged was, was very real during that time. It wasn't necessarily this hopeful, like, yeah, we're back, guys. You know, it was heavy. 
Um, there's this part in Zechariah that kind of alludes to this, and he says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of the Zerubbabel, you know, he's the governor of the time, have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the land in the hand of Zerubbabel. There was a temptation to despise the day of small things. There's a temptation to just look at the, the few rocks that build the foundation and to be like, so what? Not good enough. <laughs> you know, it's, what is this? You know, where's the temple? You know, there's a, there's a temptation towards impatience, uh, towards discouragement. And I think for us, I think there's a lot of that temptation today too as well. As we participate in the work of God, and as we wait on his promises. I mean, I don't know about you, you know, church oftentimes feels very unfruitful and unproductive. You know, being in ministry over these last 10 years, there have been amazing things God has done. But there have been the day-to-day, -day, a lot of losses, a lot of discouragements, a lot of setbacks, a lot of like, wow, that person was like going to come to Jesus. And then, oh, the, <laughs> you know, a lot of like, wow, we were going to do this thing. And then, oh, there was this conflict, you know, or this, this thing that kind of brought our church down. Or, you know, we were just, we had all these plans for hospitality and outreach and then COVID hit. You know, there are a lot of temptations to feel like, man, we just keep getting owned. <laughs> like, what is going on here? You know, church oftentimes, I feel like, feels unfruitful and unproductive. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it oftentimes feels that way. What about unanswered prayers for friends and family? I mean, I've been praying for my mom not that long compared to other people, <laughs> you know, but for probably about nine to 10 years now since I became Christian. You know, and last time she visited back in March, and it was tempting just to be like, man, is anything ever going to happen? <laughs> you know, she does not seem like she had, wants anything to do with the Lord. You know, and I'm praying for her, and I'm trying to figure out how to talk to her. You know, I desperately want to see her come to know God. Nothing's happening. You know, and, and there's this daily battle of discouragement of like, should I continue praying? Of course I should continue praying, but... I don't feel like it, you know, in this, in this, in this trouble, you know, this, 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 this challenge to have hope in the midst of discouragement. Ways we expect God to move, but he doesn't. You know, when I first came to college ministry, you know, I, I went on a missions trip to Peru and, and before that Baltimore, and, you know, I saw really a lot of amazing things happen. And I just assumed that that's just how God always was. You know, I was like, man, we just go and preach the gospel and people are going to be saved. That's just how it is, you know. Hundreds of people are going to get saved. Like, that's just, that's just how things are. That's how things ought to be. And if it's not happening that way, then something's wrong. You know, and I remember going on my first missions trip in Baltimore where it was kind of hard. <laughs> I actually remember knocking on doors of grace. You know, we're just, I don't know if you remember this, but just knocking on doors and getting rejected over and over again. <laughs> we're just like, uh, <laughs> we have such high expectations that God is going to be with us as we go out. You know, and then, and then oh, appears to us, at least, that he's not. You know, I'm not saying that God doesn't move in big ways. He absolutely does, and I believe he will. But I'm saying that this is oftentimes a diet of the church, right? The burden of the church that we have to struggle through discouraging things, things that we wish, you know, God would move in these ways, but ought not, that, that aren't necessarily occurring. And and that's part of the challenge to have hope, realistic hope 
in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of circumstances that aren't what they ought to be. So I want to give us a few things of what I think God calls the people of Zechariah to do to combat that. How do they have hope in the midst of discouragement? Well, first, this is from Zechariah 1. I don't know if you guys remember this part. I tried to highlight it when I was reading it. You know, when he's talking to them about their past judgments, he says, you know, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And so actually this thing isn't just this thing where he's rubbing, the, rubbing it in. He's like, ha ha, told you so. No, he's using it to actually encourage them. He's just trying to remind them, didn't I spend centuries warning you guys about judgment? And didn't you guys mock and not believe it, right? And not think that it would ever going to happen. And then it happened. Did it not overtake your fathers? And so he's saying that, and he's saying that again. And he's saying, well, therefore, will not these prophecies of good that I'm doing, even if they take centuries to come again, will they not happen in the same way? When you saw my words come alive in the judgment, believe now that my words are going to come again, you know, to bring you and to restore you. And that's, again, taking us back to, I think, the central text in this book. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you, you know, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. Just as I did that, and I did it, you know, I said it and I did it, I'm saying it again, I'm going to do it. He called to remember the past record of God's faithfulness. Second, I think there is this little practical aspect of being encouraged by small things here. You know, I think God does, you know, it's kind of implicit from this passage, but there is this kind of sense in which we should be encouraged by the small things. You know, we should be not just despising, ah, okay, you know, I had this minor conversation with my mom that was somewhat good, but what does it matter? Because she's not coming to Christ and I can't see her doing that. You know, I think God encourages and calls us to actually need to look at the small things and to be like, no, God is working in the midst of them even if they don't seem this, like they're fully coming to, to fruition. And finally, I think there's a call to be stubborn in hope. And I just, I really love that phrase, stubborn and hope. And I'm, not, I'm not a stubborn person. I give up very easily. I change my mind very easily. You know, I think about, it's like, this is, this is one area where you want to be stubborn. This is one area where you want to be immovable, where you just keep thinking and keep believing. And he calls them to be stubborn in hope. And there's this famous verse in Zechariah, you know, it's the second part of that verse I just read to you. As for you also, because of my blood and my covenant with you, I'll set your prisoners free from the waters of pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore you double. And many people have highlighted this phrase, and it's just such a beautiful, paradoxical phrase. Prisoners of hope. And he turns that prisoner around. I will set your prisoners free, prisoners in the literal sense prisoners of hope. You know, what is it like to be someone who is imprisoned by hope? You know, it's like almost this positive thing and this negative thing at the same time. I feel like that's somehow, sometimes, a lot of times what the Christian life feels like is that we're called, we have this burden to hope in this amazing reality of what God is going to do. Um, but we have the daily frustration of being locked into that. And boy, there are many days and I just wish I didn't have to hope in that. You know, days when I just wish I'm just, okay, I'm just, I'm tired of having these expectations. I'm just going to give up my hopes. I'm just going to just see things as they are. <laughs> There's a lot of temptation for that. 
But Christ, I think God has called us to be prisoners of hope, to be stubborn in our hope, return to your stronghold. So I think that's something that speaks to me even, you know, of what it looks like to pursue hope in the midst of discouragement. Finally, I'm going to wrap up soon. Um, Zechariah talks about living justly and rightly as people of hope. And so it's not just about, you know, persevering in hope, which is certainly part of it. But in the meantime, as we do that, as we're waiting on God, we live justly and rightly. There is action to be had here, even as we're hoping and waiting what God is doing. Let me show you it from Zechariah. It says, you know, this is that first part is that passage I just kept reading, right? Just showing you immediately afterwards. It says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gate judgment that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath for all these things I hate. In Zechariah, not seven, he says similar kinds of things. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. And so basically, if I had ever summarize the things that he's calling them to do, he's basically calling them to act in justice, to live in justice, right? To speak and advocate for truth, to act rightly with one another, to show kindness and mercy, not to take advantage of the poor and vulnerable. And the flip side of that is to care for the poor and the vulnerable, right? And so this is what God has called them to do. Now, I want to note two things here. First, why is this the thing that God has called them to do, to act justly and rightly? Why are these the things he highlights? Well, I think it's quite poetic, actually, when you look at the whole book of Zechariah. Zechariah is about how God is going to bring the world to rightness, right, to wholeness, how he's going to restore this world to what it ought to be. And that's what justice is, right? Justice is things being the way they ought to be. Now, the first people that God wants to do that with, the first things that God wants to do that with is with the people that have messed up his world. <laughs> the people, the broken people that have been the center of this broken world. And so in God saying, hey, I'm, I'm doing this big plan of restoring the whole universe, the whole world, doing away with death and disease and all these things. Well, part of that is restoring the people. Part of that is restoring people to justice. And what do just people look like? Well, they live in justice. They live in righteousness. I think that's why God puts that here. He's saying that if you've bought into this plan of what I'm going to do, then you're going to act in this kind of way because that's part of what I'm doing. I think there's a very important aspect here that I also want to highlight here, um, that, he, that we're called to act out of hope in his promises. I think whenever we get to this application part, it often feels dis, you know, disconnected from what God is doing. It often feels like, all right, now here's the things you ought to do now, and you better do them, otherwise God is not going to be pleased with you, and we just slip into this legalistic framework and mindset. But that's not how this goes. We need to pay careful attention to the order of these passages, right? God says, I purpose in these days to bring good to you, Jerusalem. Full stop, right? I am going to do these things to you because of the blood of my covenant with you. These are the things you should do. Do these things. So he's not saying, do these things so that I will bring about these things. And if you better do them, if you don't do them, I'm not going to be bringing about these things. He's saying, I am going to be doing these things. And therefore, you as my people should participate in that by being part of this picture of redemption and justice and renewal. By speaking the truth to one another, by not devising evil, 
you know, by living in this way that reflects it. I think that's a very important nuance to get right. Because so much of our motivation as Christians, I think, does come from legalism and does come from the sense of, oh, I better do the right things. Otherwise, God's not going to be pleased with me. People are not going to be pleased with me. And that's not at all the heart, right, as we see in Scripture. God is going to do these things anyways because he loves you and he wants you to partake. He wants you to participate in it. I'm going to close with just one illustration of that. I've been watching Ted Lasso. I know I'm two years late. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like I watch every show like, like way after people are talking about it. People are just like, I don't even remember what that show is about. Anyways, anyway, um, but I've been watching Ted Lasso, right? And if you, those of you guys have not watched it, it's the premise is, you know, it's this American like, like cowboy dude who's from like, I don't know, Oklahoma or somewhere. And he gets, you know, called to coach like, a premier league, like soccer, soccer team. And he knows like nothing about soccer. And he's like the most American dude around, you know, and he's here like hanging out with the Brits and, and trying to, you know, like he's coaching this team that he like, doesn't really know much about. And, you know, and, and if I would describe the main theme of this movie or not this movie, the series is really about how this man's hope and optimism, I'll, I'll be in a secular way, overcomes, you know, the hostility and overcomes these obstacles. Like, he's not qualified for his job. He's not good for what he's doing. Because of who he is and because of his mindset, he's able to kind of win over his team, Tim. And when he comes, he has a lot of opposition. I mean, the British media are calling him a bad word that I will not repeat up here. You know, he's, he's like, you know, his own team just like thinks like, you know, he's, this guy's going to be gone in a couple of weeks. What I think about interesting, you know, is how he overcomes, you know, what his strategy is. And it's just consistently just pursuing relentlessly just you know, pursuing this optimistic view of just of, of encouraging them and bring positivity. And one of the first people he has to do that with is with the team captain. His name is Roy. Um, so Roy's like, like the rest of the team, he's just completely against him, like thinks he's just a horrible person, you know. And then, you know, and it's interesting early on, it, it's, simp it's interesting how he wins over this team captain, Roy, how he kind of incepts him a little bit, you know, one would say manipulate maybe in, in a hard way, but incepts him with this responsibility in his heart for this team. He makes Roy, this captain, take ownership over his team. And he gives them this heart to kind of, to care for his team. And, and he does that because there's bullies on this team and they're bullying other people on the team. And, and he's like, you know, are you gonna stand up for that? And he incites this man's own sense of justice and care for his team to stand up and to take ownership and to take leadership over his team. That's one of the first thing Ted does, you know, to sort of, as he's winning over his team. And that image is always stuck in my mind about what God is doing. I believe God is trying to win over this world. I believe that he's bringing about that justice. And unlike Ted in here, he's going to be 100% successful in that. There's no question about it. But I think we are like Roy. I think we are like the first people, you know, the church. We are the, the people, the early backers, so to speak, you know, of this thing that God has brought about. You know, we're the people. And I feel like that's what God is trying to do here in this passage. He's, incepting us with this responsibility and with this heart that he has for this world. He says, live justly and act righteously because that's who I am and that's what I'm doing. And he wants to share that heart with us. He wants to get us on his team, so to speak, to win us over so that we would be able to live lives that reflect what he is doing. So that's how I see that main application, that main exhortation that Zechariah has for us. So just want to summarize for us, you know, as we close, 
Let's rejoice in the gospel that God's purpose for us is love and mercy and not judgments. Some of us just need to be reminded of that. Let's continue to hope in the good he promises to do, even in the midst of disappointing circumstances. And finally, let's live justly and righteously as we wait and hope in him because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, we just thank you for this book. Thank you for, God, your word, which always has stuff to say to us, God, wherever we are and whatever season we are at. Thank you that you love us so unconditionally, that you poured out the blood of your own son. to atone for our sins, to take the judgment we deserved so that you might be able to show us unending mercy, unending grace. I thank you that our sins have been forgiven. I thank you that we are defined not by what we do and who we are now, but because of what you have done by your words over us. That's what defines us now. And I thank you that you've called us to this incredible journey of of hoping in you, of waiting on you, and of living in a way that reflects you. God, we don't live like hopeless people in this world because we have so much hope and who you are and what you're going to do. And so, Lord, I just pray for that over us as a church, that we would be people characterized by hope, and we would be people who are able to have joy in the, even in the midst of things that are frankly depressing and discouraging. God, I just pray that over us so much, Lord, that that we would be people that are marked by that. In Jesus' name we pray.